Hey everyone, it's the Hemonk Pulse, the podcast focused 100% on all things hematology. I'm your host, Dr. Shadi Nabhan, a hematologist and an oncologist. And you may have heard me on my other podcast, Healthcare Unfiltered. Check that out. But today is all about the Hemonk Pulse, the podcast that brings you everything hematology. This is how you put your fingers on the pulse of hematology. Today's podcast is hosting Dr. Navneet Majhel, who is the Physician-in-Chief of Blood Cancers at the Sarah Cannon Research Institute. Uh, prior to that, Navneet was at the Cleveland Clinic Foundation, but he has been at Sarah Cannon for a while. He also served as the President of the American Society for Transplantation and Cellular Therapy in 2019 and 2020. Navneet and I are going to discuss the logistics and challenges of CAR-T cellular therapy and how best we can enhance the access of this potentially curative therapy to most and all patients who are eligible for this treatment. I'm also going to challenge him about what is the role of CAR-T therapy now with bispecific antibodies being available and present for many blood cancers. I think I want to get started by asking a little bit about you and get listeners to know a little bit about you, your career journey, and and how did you um, uh, end up doing BMT cellular therapy and uh, your journey until you got to Sarah Cannon. Yeah, Shadi, thanks for inviting me to this podcast and looking forward to our conversation on uh, uh, the logistics of CAR-Ts and possibly bites as well, if you have the time. So to tell you about myself, my current role uh, is uh, I'm the physician in chief of blood cancers for uh, the Sarah Cannon Cancer Institute. And not sure how many of your listeners are familiar with Sarah Cannon. Uh, we are so I mean we are the Cancer Institute for HCA Healthcare. Uh, the mission essentially is to provide high quality, innovative, research driven um, uh, care to cancer patients where they live. And to give you a sense, I mean, AC has close to 180 plus hospitals in 26 states. And uh, in, in that context, the goal is and the vision is to provide cancer services to patients who are touched by our ACA healthcare system as a whole. We have a Sarah Cannon transplant and cellular therapy network. Uh, we have a network of 10 transplant programs, seven in the US, three in the UK. And collectively, they work as one big BMT program. Uh, Shadi, you know, I mean, I always say the transplanters are the surgeons who went into medicine. You know, so you can you can imagine how strongly opinionated they are. And what our network has done, we have close to 50 hematologists who focus on leukemia care and transplants. And they've really done a fantastic job coming together, setting up care pathways. And we we all, even though we are separate sites, in essence, we work as one big BMT program. And to give you a sense of our scale and scope, uh, in 2022, our network performed 1,600 transplant cell therapies, including close to 250 cell therapies uh, or immune effector cell therapies. And nearly half of them were on FDA-approved products and the other half were on clinical trials. And uh, we took care of close to 2,000 acute leukemia patients through our network of these centers, not the whole HCA ecosystem, just the centers. So uh, it's a huge opportunity for us as we impact patients. It's amazing. I mean, I think the um, how big the network is and, and the service that you guys are providing is uh, very impressive. And um, patients are lucky to have you. Um, Navneet, what I want to talk about a little bit more CAR-T and a little bit about on bispecific. So let's start with CAR-T cellular therapy. I don't think we need to argue that they have been transformational. Um, Absolutely. 
uh, you know, there are patients who probably would have never lived if they have not received CAR-T. Um, so, so we know all of this. There has been a lot of chatter in papers, in social media, that, that CAR-T cellular therapy, they're effective, but the logistics of delivering CAR-T cellular therapy have really prevented many patients who would have, who would have needed to receive that therapy from receiving it. So, so let's talk about the logistics and what type of operational changes you have made to, to, to make it easier, um, I guess, to overcome the challenges um, uh, of delivering CAR-T cellular therapy. Yeah, Charlie, that's a good point because our first FDA-approved products, if you go back to Axicaptogen cellulosal, right, Axicellus carta, uh, we've had this FDA approved for close to what five years now, right? And then we've had a plethora of other newer products come through with expanding indications. And you, you're spot on. I mean, we're five years into this, and we still haven't completely realized the potential of these CAR T cell therapies. And as I think about these, you can think about these in different buckets or different components uh, as you consider the logistical operational access challenges our patients have, right? So you, it, it begins with the access piece. Uh, I still feel we are having issues getting patients to our doors quickly as, uh, I mean, again, you've got to keep in mind, these patients are much more sicker, right? Than some of the other patients we've seen traditionally for our transplants. Again, not to minimize how sick and advanced those patients with leukemia, lymphomas, myelomas are, but these are patients with actively blowing off disease, right? So, uh, so, so again, I think the access piece continues to be a challenge. Uh, again, I think there are still some opportunities for us to educate our uh, referring colleagues about when these patients need to come in, how do we get them in at our own centers as well? And I'll come back to that in a moment. Uh, but what is the access piece, getting these patients in? I think the second piece is the payers as well. Right. So, I, I mean, even though we've done it for all these years, I think the payers are still reaching that level of sophistication as to how do you make these things move faster? I think uh, for most of us, we are still focusing on single case agreements for each of the patient that comes through. Now, uh, obviously, it's, it's much simpler now than what it was four years ago, because some payers are using the same templates again and again. But most of the payers have not managed to set these uh, center of excellence networks, for example, right, that we have for transplants, which really facilitates the process of getting patients through. Uh, so you've got the access issue, you've got the payers issue. Just for payers, before you go, just for payers, have you seen payers demanding one CAR-T product versus another? Uh, in other no, not, not in my experience as yet. Okay. Not in my experience as yet, uh, Charlie, and we can talk more about this, but at some point, you can envision that might happen, right? As we get more and more products with the on uh, on the same indication, so we got the payers, the access. I think the third piece and a big piece is the manufacturers as well, right? I mean, you're very aware of some of the the production issues we have with, uh, uh, you know, in the myeloma space specifically at, at the moment. I, I think it's, uh, the the lymphoma space has obviously gotten better. The presence of multiple products has helped, but uh, the production issue continues to be a challenge and a barrier to getting these patients through as well. And uh, then, I mean, uh, I have to uh, say it is at the level of these transplant centers as well. I mean, we're doing more transplants, we're having capacity issues. 
Uh, we, I mean, I can tell you in most of our programs, we have a severe nursing shortage, right? I mean, that's that's pervasive throughout the country. And that is being a big blow. I mean, we're doing this more patient need, we're doing more, but we don't have enough staff and resources to take care of those patients, right? So I think it's multifaceted as you think about why these therapies are not happening as much as they need to at the moment. Do you think that uh, in, outside of large centers, the smaller oncology practices are still unaware of the potential activity and efficacy of CAR-T? Like, is there an educational component where, you know, folks may still have um, nihilistic or dismissive approach that these are aggressive therapies? My patient can't wait six weeks until they yeah. get the you know, the pharesis and the chemo, the chemotherapy and the, collect, the you know, the T-cell, the, the, the CAR-T product uh, um, uh, manufacturing. Like, you know, some folks might say, well, you know, my patient won't be able to wait. So they just don't even refer. So that that is certainly a part of the issue, Shadi. I mean, so again, that certainly is a part of the issue where we need to educate our colleagues more about when to send these patients in and how to send them in more quickly in their disease process versus waiting or making decisions on eligibility or candidacy just at their own end. So then, then the then the there's an element of which is the toxicity management, right? Mm -hmm. uh, with the CAR T cellular therapy. So what have you done in terms of, um, is there anything protocol specific to manage toxicities? Do patients have to be closer to, to the site uh, for weeks or days? Like what, how do you manage or how do you build the program to manage toxicities and adverse events? Yeah, so we're, we're doing some cool things, Tati, which I'll be happy to talk about. But before we go there and still focusing on that access piece, and to emphasize some of the numbers that will put this into context. Uh, so uh, just to give you a sense, uh, we have five programs in the US that offer these immune effector cell therapies. And Dr. Minu Bhattwala is one of my uh, colleagues here in Nashville. Uh, he uh, is the director for uh, uh, outcomes research for our serocannon transplant and cellular therapy network. And he presented an abstract at the our BNP tandem meetings a few months ago where we looked at close to 400 patients who were referred to us for a CAR-T for lymphoma, an FDA-approved product uh, over a period of three or four years since they were first approved 2018 onwards. And uh, what he showed in those 400 patients, again, keep in mind, these are patients who, are, who hit our door, right? So they were referred to us. So someone thought they were candidates, needed this infusion, and they came to us. 40% uh, of those patients did not make it to an infusion. So, I mean, you, you can do the math, right? Out of close to those 400 patients in a highly sophisticated network, you know, where these patients actually hit the door, 40% did not end up getting an infusion. So I think this, this emphasizes all the, the complexities and the issues right from access to payers, uh, to collection, manufacturing, and what do you do for those five, six weeks as those products are being manufactured and try and maintain and salvage those patients. So by the time they, it, by the time it's, uh, uh, they're ready to move ahead with lymphodepletion and infusion, they're still a candidate. So it just gives you a sense of the issues we're facing. So coming on to the coming back to the toxicity question uh, again, I, sh I should mention here. There's a lot of discussion about where do you do this, right? Inpatient and outpatient as well. And I can tell you, Shadi, that out of the five programs in the U.S. that offer these therapies, we have four programs set up for outpatient care, 
And uh, essentially, all our programs are, I mean, performing these therapies in the outpatient setting. Again, some patients do get admitted for toxicities and whatnot. But uh, I mean, across our network in 2022, uh, out of the 250 cell therapies, cell therapies we did, uh, 70% were done in the outpatient setting. Just for listeners, let's go through the, the, the platform. Uh, a patient comes in, you've got the, sometimes you have to give bridging chemo. Mm -hmm. Yes. So I want to know whether you prefer to give it or the local oncologist does. And then after that, you've got the collection. Right. Right. And then you have the wait period until you get back the construct. And then you've got the lymphodepletion chemotherapy. That's correct. All, All of this is outpatient. All, all of all of this is outpatient. Uh, again, the bridging therapy may be inpatient, outpatient, depending on what is chosen, either by us or the referring oncologist. Uh, but all this is outpatient. And again, uh, like I said, out of the 250 CAR-Ts we did in 2022, 70% were done in the outpatient setting. And how we achieve this, Charlie, is by a couple of ways. Our docs have done a great job of coming up with criteria for who is a candidate and who is not a candidate, right? From a organ function perspective, uh, I mean, uh, from the perspective of performance status and so forth. So, I mean, they, they do a great job sticking to the criteria that they've established, you know, where they try not to be cavalier and go beyond that. I mean, they're, they're liberal, they're very patient-centric, but I think they've done a good job coming up with those criteria and sticking with them. Uh, the other thing we do is to facilitate this in the outpatient setting. Uh, again, you need the outpatient infrastructure, right? Kind of the day hospitals, kind of where you have the right staffing and so forth to ensure those patients can be managed safely in the outpatient setting. Uh, the other thing we do, Chadi, is uh, we we use this uh, uh, remote patient monitoring platform to keep patients in the outpatient setting. It's, it's actually a pretty cool set- setup. There's a whole kit. Our patients get, it has a tablet, you know, which, you know, you turn it on, it tells you what to do, you know, I mean, uh, check your blood pressure, how are you feeling today, are you having fevers and whatnot. There's a wearable temperature monitor that they stick under their armpit that's giving us 24-7 temperature monitoring. Uh, there's a small, uh, uh, like a wearable device they uh, strap onto their arm that's giving us blood pressure, uh, their pulse ox, pulse rate, whatnot. And we're working with a vendor that has a 27, 24-7 command center, right? So all this data is going in. They've got nurses that are looking at that. And then uh, we've got obviously workflows and so forth that um, uh, bring that information back to our teams, you know, the nurses, the physicians, in case a patient has to be seen or brought into the ER for managing CRS. And the other thing our teams have done is we've standardized the uh, the pathways for treating CRS and ICANS as well, right? So, I mean, uh, you can imagine working through all these sites, the, the emergency departments have to be educated, right? And making sure they're held accountable to those standards. So it's it's uh, it's a team effort, you know, a lot of people involved, but uh, uh, really, really proud of the work those guys are doing to make sure this happens in that setting. Is, it, is, it, is that the trend across the country to do these outpatient? Like, are you seeing this happening across the country or this is specific to what you guys are doing at Sarah Cannon? So this is my sense. I know many programs are trying to sell these outpatient CAR-T programs. Uh, I think with the scale of what we do, I think we've been more successful in setting up this outpatient 
uh, a program much more than maybe some of our counterparts, you know, just just because of the scale of what we have. I mean, you're aware, obviously, that there has been a lot of literature recently published on in patients with relapsed large cell lymphoma that the CAR T cellular therapy is potentially more effective than autonomous mm -hmm. transplant, which has right. been what we've done since the mid 90s. Right. Um, so, um, and you know, I think we can debate some of the issues pertaining to which product and which trial, but for the most part, I think what I'm seeing is that for a lot of patients who have a relapsed large cell lymphoma within 12 months, I think they're gonna be offered more likely CAR-T as opposed to autologous transplant. That's what I'm seeing. That, that is correct, Charlie, and we're seeing those trends already. You know, yeah. our uh, autotransplants for lymphomas are trending down, yeah. and they are being replaced by CAR-Ts in that first relapse setting. And if you look at data this year, BNPR and across the country, I think it's the same trend, which we'll keep seeing not only for lymphoma, but I think, as, as you know, I mean, uh, we got some early data uh, uh, on the myeloma side as well, and I, I think we'll see more of this in other indications as well. So that that's why the logistics are critical. Absolutely, if yeah. We, if we really believe that CAR T is superior than autologous transplant in terms of survival, and you're unable to deliver that therapy because of logistics, it's a big problem. But 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 we have like three products right now, right? I mean, the Escorta, the Lysocell, and others. So so is there any scientific rationale to choose one versus the other when you have a patient in front of you that requires CAR T for lympho for for uh, large cell lymphoma? I mean, uh, scientifically, or is it really based on what the payer tells you? Or I mean, how do you make that choice? So, Chadi, at, at the moment, uh, thankfully, the payers are not telling us what product to choose, right? Because if you add in that complexity, as, as you can imagine, that'll that'll make things even more murky, if you will. But I haven't seen that the, the payers demanding using one product uh, or the other. But I can foresee that happening sometime. I think in it's coming. It's going to happen. It's it's going to happen, right? Because if you, I mean, uh, uh, especially given how costly these products are, right? So it's going to happen. Uh, so I, I think that's coming at some point. Uh, and uh, I think with respect to one product over the other, so Charlie, the last thing I do is I tell our 50 docs what to do. They they tell me what they want to do and I and our team make it happen. And in that context, uh, we've got our groups for lymphoma, we've got our groups for myeloma, and uh, they looked at the data. We were a part of many of these clinical trials for all of these products as well. So there's obviously the clinical data and their own anecdotal experience as they've looked at these uh, these patients coming through. And uh, they, they preferentially use one product over the other, You know, uh, even though we have the availability to offer all products. But we have seen our docs uh, gravitate towards specific products for lymphoma, myeloma, and so forth, where, where there is the option. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, it's probably not now yet. I, I predict, and that's just me predicting, I predict that, you know, eventually payers are going to dictate which product to use unless there's really a, a real difference in terms of outcomes, because there will be some elements of this negotiation between manufacturers and payers. Uh, and I think some of the decisions that payers will rely on will be real-world data pertaining to toxicity and survival, which your network will actually be able to have if you're tracking the outcomes, obviously. In fact, we have a registry, Chadi, that we have set up specifically for CAR-T. Yeah. So, so actively looking at, at these data. I mean, to give you a sense, we've done close to 600 plus cell therapy infusions through our network since it started. So that's, that's pretty great. prime to, uh, to help yeah. out with that.
So my last question pertains to uh, biospecifics, because mm -hmm. look, biospecifics uh, obviously have made a headway in hematologic malignancies in general. Um, and I think uh, many people like them because A, re they require no referral. B, they have uh, fewer toxicities than CAR T, okay. I mean, from a CRS and neurotoxicity. And um, there's no shipping and manufacturing and failure to make the product. So, and some people are saying, you know, by the time a patient comes to you to get CAR T, they will have had a biospecific. So I guess, tell me, tell me about this. Tell me what are your thoughts about biospecifics? How would the, how is the availability of biospecific antibodies will impact CAR T cellular therapy, utilization, uh, treatment, and frankly, the outcomes, because the outcomes of published data with CAR T uh, are mainly in patients who have not received prior biospecifics. So yeah. take me through that thought process. So, Charlie, this this is a pretty loaded and complex question with several layers to it. So let, that's let how me, we do me, it on the Hemang Pulse, yeah. buddy. That's how we do it. Yes, yeah, so let me let me tease tease things apart here, right? So, uh, I think there are several aspects to the questions you've asked. Question you've asked, right? The first is uh, how will it impact CAR T? My prediction, Charlie, is uh, I think uh, uh, it won't impact CAR T as much, and the reason I say that is. Uh, so we, we've looked at some analysis, we've done some analysis, looked at some data, I think, uh, uh, across the country, and especially in the places we have our programs. Uh, over the next five years, with the indications that we currently have for CAR-T, we're expecting anywhere from three to five times more patients who will need CAR-T therapies, right? So some of them will go to bites, but the CAR-T piece, I think, will keep increasing. Maybe not like this, as people have predicted, prior to bites in this area, but there are going to be more patients who need these therapies uh, than what our centers can provide, uh, uh, just uh, the ones that are, that are doing CAR-T. So at the end of the day, I think it's good for patients because they have more options, right? And you're right. I think the, the big debate or the big uh, question is, uh, how many of these, how much uh, How much would these bite therapies eat away at the CAR-T patients who come to our centers? And it, it will. And like you said, Charlie, it makes sense for many of those patients because they can stay locally. They can uh, do uh, these therapies in a community setting, you know, similar to blenitumumab, uh, uh, right, that we do in ALL. It's the same concept. And I think our colleagues in the community are sophisticated enough and have the setups to manage the CRS and so forth, you see early on with drugs like, uh, like blenitumumab, and they learn how to manage CRS and ICANS that is very limited to the early setting. So, so I think uh, even though uh, bites and CAR-Ts will coexist, there will be more patients than what we can treat with CAR-T by itself. So I think there'll be a place for both. And as you know, Charlie, in medicine, I mean, you have you have multiple treatments for the same disease, right? And over time, they find their niche, right? I mean, people figure out how to sequence them, how one impacts the other, and so forth. Uh, with respect to uh, outcomes of CAR-T, uh, to be honest, I don't know. There's a lot of concern, right? If you have a bite that's directed towards BCMA, does it impact the efficacy of uh, a BECMA or Carvecti? You know, how do you sequence them and so forth? I think there's some early data which shows that in some patients it may not matter as much. You still see responses, but it's too early, I would say, Charlie, before we get a sense of what's the right sequence. And maybe that'll dictate how we do it and who's the right patient for white therapy versus party. See why I always advocate for real world data. 
Yeah. Because I don't think you'd be able to answer this honestly in a random. I don't think there'll be a randomized clinical trial. You're not going to do it. So you're going to see how things play out, and with the register, you'll be able to find this. Yeah. Navneet, is there anything else I should have asked you, and I did not ask you because you know I sometimes mess up, and as I age rapidly, I forget things. So anything I should have asked you? No, this has been great, Shadi, to have this conversation around the logistics of parties and so forth. Um, Again, uh, I, I think uh, we're all losing sleep over the fact that we'll have, we, we've got such impactful therapies, right? Like you said early on, we've got such impactful and transformational therapies. And, and how do we solve this access and reimbursement issues, right? We didn't talk much about reimbursement today, but I mean, these are expensive therapies and, uh, and that's certainly impacting, you know, uh, a lot more of the scrutiny that happens around them, rightly so, given their cost and their complexity. Uh, but uh, I mean, it'll it'll be an interesting. Uh, it's an interesting issue to solve as we go forward. And uh, again, we'll look forward to talking more as we do some more cool things through our Sierra Canada network to address all these issues. Well, I'll bring you back in six to eight months. We'll talk some more, and I do think uh, I'll be very um, looking forward to knowing some of the output of the registry that you're forming. I think yeah, the output that yeah, and and we're we're looking at at models. Like I said, we've got a huge network of hospitals, so we're looking at these hub and spoke models with you know the complicated stuff happening more in our core sites and using some of our HCS Hurricane and facilities to take care of uh, patients more in the communities where their uh, referring docs might be situated. Dr. Navneet Majel, or as we call it, like uh, uh, your Twitter handle is at something. Blood cancer doc. Uh, at blood cancer doc. I don't know how you got that. That's pretty, that's called innovation and futuristic approach. You got the at blood cancer doc. Well, Dr. Navneet Majel, thank you so much for joining me on the Hemind Pulse. Always wonderful to see you, my friend. Yeah, same here, Charlie. Nice talking to you.